title of my talk is called Alone with the Surgeon. And I don't speak of me, I speak of him. Alone with the surgeon. And I thought it might help us to understand how one becomes a surgeon, the process of training. Uh, because I think uh, in many ways that has been uh, my walk with God these last few months has taken me back to my training and how I became uh, a surgeon. Uh, and I think he's using that in me. By the way, this talk is for me way more than it is for you guys. So don't don't feel like I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching at myself. Um, the idea that he's using where he's brought me and how he's gotten me to where I've been and how he creates a surgeon uh, from a uh, an anxious medical student and turns him into a, a cardiac surgeon, how he does that, I think parallels a lot with how he wants us to walk with him. Uh, we have mentors in surgery. Obviously, God wants to be our mentor, and he shows, he gives us Jesus uh, as an example of how to do that. So, um, Alone with the surgeon, our surgical journey, medical student to become a cardiac surgeon, is to make one more like one's mentor. Hang around with some really quality surgeons, get to a great training, training program, uh, and essentially eat what they eat, do what they do, read what they read, act like they act, right? That's the idea of how you mold one into become a great heart surgeon. <clears throat> I think our spiritual journey is much the same way. Take a broken down disaster of me before I was saved and make me more like Christ. And how does he do that? Hang out with me, watch what I do, eat what I eat, say what I say, think like I think. Uh, and I think it's the same thing. And so I want to talk through a little bit of how I became a surgeon because I think there's parallels with how we can walk uh, with Christ. Understand, in the operating room, there's an OR table with a patient right in front of me. The head is here, the feet are here. And I am standing on the patient's right arm. I'm standing on the right side of the patient, the right versus left, not right versus wrong, on the right side of the patient. And the assistant is standing on the left side of the patient. And the goal, and when I started, I stood at the left side of the patient, the goal, and it'll t it would have taken nine years, and that's what it took, the goal is to make it from that side of the table to this side of the table. That is the goal. It takes nine years to get there, and there's a process in those nine years. Some takes longer. Uh, but to be a heart surgeon, it takes nine years to get from the left side of the table to the right side of the table. And throughout those nine years, the entire thought process is, how can I get over there? What can I do? How, what do I eat? What do I read? How do I think? What, how do I get to the other side of the table? That's my goal. The progression of getting to the right side of the table is first, watch. See a lot of surgery. See what they do. Remember what they do. Think about why they're doing it. But watch. Then over time, okay, come over here for a few minutes. I'll go over there. Come on the, on the right side of the table, and I'll let you do a little bit. Maybe I'll let you make the incision. Maybe I'll let you start cannulation, whatever. Uh, but then go back, and then I'll do the rest of the operation. This is my mentor talking. I'll do the rest of the operation. At the end, when it's time to close, I'll bring you over. So do part of the operation. Then over time, over years, do more of the operation. Eventually, some eight years into the nine or six years into the nine, do the whole operation with, with the mentor standing on the other side. Do the whole operation. 
Great. Now you got one operation down. Now there's 30 other operations you got to figure out. Okay, start over there. Do it right. So it's a it's a very slow progression, which is a good thing. I'm not busting on how we make heart surgeons. That's a good thing, right? You wouldn't want a 20-year-old operating on your heart. They haven't seen enough. They haven't done enough. They haven't, you know, cut this in half and had to fix it. This blew up and had to put that back together. Those sorts of things. But the idea is watch, do part of it, do more of it, do all of it. And eventually, okay, now that you've done all of it, gain experience. Do more of those so that you say, I remember a few months ago we had one of these, and yeah, I did the whole thing, but then that fell apart. Or then the gunshot in the crash room to the pulmonary artery. Well, we haven't worked on the pulmonary artery in a while. Yeah, but I remember because I've done a million of them. So the idea is a progression from that side of the table to this side of the table. In our training, there are certain rules that you learn very early on in training. And they are inviolable rules. And the first rule is, and you learn this as an intern, as a medical student, don't ever lie to me. Don't ever make it up. So here's how that works. You say, why would I lie? Of course, no. You ask me a question on the answer, I say, I don't know. No, not so easy. So we're making rounds in the morning. This is at Columbia. I trained at Columbia, New York. I was there for nine and a half years. We're making rounds in the morning. The intern at that time, the first year out of medical school, was me. I'm the intern. There's 40 or 50 patients on the service. I will had to have seen all of them and written a note on the chart back in the days when we wrote notes. Now it's all, uh, you know, on an electronic. See all 40 patients. There's two interns. I see 20. You see 20. Write a note on the chart on how they're doing. They had a fever last night. They're doing well. Their cough is improving. The incision looks better. Whatever it is, write a note on the chart on my 20 or 25 patients and have that done by 7 a.m. Usually start about 4.30 in the morning for that year. Horrible year. At 7 a.m., the rest of the team shows up. Now there's 10 of us. And we go around from room to room, and they say, Mrs. Smith. Okay, Dr. Terry, how's Mrs. Smith doing? Well, I saw her this morning. Her wound is better. Her fever's down. Antibiotics are finishing as of today. Whatever, we go through the whole process. We get to the next patient, Mrs. Jones. Dr. Terry, how's she doing? She's all set. She's getting her gallbladder out this morning. Pre-op is all figured out. We're all good. He says, Dr. Terry, did you do her pre-op? Yes, I did. No, I didn't. I say, yes, I did. How was her pre-op? Pre-op was fine. Potassium was okay, electrolytes, everything was fine. I make it up. Why did I make it up? Because I overslept. 4.30, I didn't get started till 5.30. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to see the pre-ops because they're fine. There's nothing wrong with the pre-ops. I won't see the pre-ops. I'll see them. Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Jones, whoever it was, gets to the operating room and their potassium is 7 and I never checked it. Now they put her under anesthesia and she dies. Right? Now, I made that up, but that's real. That could happen. So don't ever lie to me. If you overslept, I get it. That happens. We're all human. Tell me you overslept, and I'll send Bob over here to go check her potassium, make sure she doesn't die when we put her to sleep. I can deal with human errors. I can't deal with, don't lie to me. If you don't know, you say you don't know. If you overslept, you say you overslept. Be a man about it and deal with it. And and I'll deal with it. Okay. First rule, don't ever lie to me. Don't ever make anything up. Second rule in the operating room, and this one's huge, and it may not sound huge at the outset, but this is huge. In the operating room, if I'm operating with you, now I'm the mentor, you're the student. If I'm operating with you and I say stop, you stop immediately. 
You don't keep going with what your thought was and then stop. That's too late. I say stop, you stop immediately. I went to high school not far from here, CV East, and a couple of buddies of mine and I took, not sure why I'm saying this at a men's conference, took a typing class. True story. We took Typing 101, 10th grade, me and my buddy Scott. And uh, the guy up front, we called him Buzz because he had a buzz cut, Buzz Hintonline. Buzz Hintonline taught typing. We used to have timed typing. Three minutes type, Johnny jumped over the fence and, uh, you know, whatever, and you're typing it out. And he'd type it, and he'd start, say go, back in the day of the old type where you had to push the thing, you know, the whole deal. And we're typing through it, ding, three minutes is up. And what do you hear in the room? Right? We're trying to get a few more words in so that I could do 10 words a minute instead of five words a minute, whatever. When we say stop in the oar, you got to stop. And that comes to light a few years later when I was operating with a fellow named Adam. We'll never forget it. And there is, uh, we're taking a gallbladder out, straightforward procedure. There's a cystic duct comes out of the gallbladder. There's a common bile duct comes out of the liver. They join like a Y. The common bile duct empties into the, uh, into the intestines. Real straightforward. Cut the cystic duct. Leads out of the gallbladder. Take the gallbladder out. We all go home. Close it up. Everything's good. Common bile duct's right next to it. And sometimes they sort to do one of these squirrely things like this. It's not a straightforward why like it's in the picture in the book. Sometimes it sort of looks like that. Make sure you got the cystic duct. Don't cut the common bile duct. Cut the common bile duct. Huge deal. This patient will have biliary issues for the rest of her life. Huge, huge deal. Don't cut the common bile duct. So the answer is easy. Splay it out. Make sure this one's can follow it up to the gallbladder. That's the cystic duct. It's not hard. Just splay it out. Take your time. So I'm operating one time, and I'm in charge at that point. I was the chief resident, and I'm taking Adam through the case. And the thing's one of these deals. So we're cleaning it up, trying to figure out which one goes here, which one goes here. And he's about to divide it, right? What is it, measure, measure twice, cut once, right? He's about to divide it. And I say, let's just make sure that's a cystic duct. Like, that's the only reason we're here. Take your time. Make sure it's the right one. And we're about to cut it. And he, I said, Adam, is that to say, yeah, I think it's cystic duct. Okay. I'm still not sure. And I'm in charge. I'm still not sure. I say, stop. He stops because he knows the rule. I decided, I said, give me the meds. I dissected it out a little further. And sure enough, it did a dipsy doodle and it went up to the liver. It wasn't the cystic duct. It was a common bile duct. We were about to ruin this patient's life for the next 50 years. That's a disaster cut in the common bile duct. My point there was, I was much more senior than he was. He was sure that was the cystic duct. He was convinced that is, that what's, what's up, Terry doing? What's, what's taking so long? We'll get me out of here eating lunch already. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Hang on a second. And we look. He was so sure of it, he had no consequence in it. He's not the one going to tell the husband, hey, we cut the wrong duct. I got some stake in the game. I got some skin in the game. I got to go tell the husband, eh, let's take another 30 seconds and make sure this is the right thing. So the rules in the OR, don't ever lie to me and stop when I say stop. And we learn those as we go through. So the idea of the progression, watch. 
What do we learn from Watch? I watch. I had some really good mentors at Columbia. One of which, one of whom, was Jan Quagabar. He was a pediatric heart surgeon. We called him Q because his name was this long and it had 50 valves in it. We called him Q. <clears throat> and Q was a master. Q was an artist. And the thing I always was drawn to in pediatric heart surgery, pediatric heart surgery is you are taking a baby, usually a day old or a week old or a month old, you're taking a baby who's born without, perhaps without a valve, and you need to create a valve. The problem is in babies, in adults, if somebody needed a valve, I got a bunch of valves on the shelf, I take one off, I fit the size, you need a size 21, 23, 25, I got them all on the shelf. I got two sets on the shelf in case the nurse drops one. In kids, there's no valve that small. There is no valve on the shelf. What you got is whatever's there. Deal with it. And it becomes artistry. It becomes plastic surgery. I need to create a valve where, there, where God didn't put a valve. And so Q, who was an artist, truly an artist, I, I, I say that with all respect, Q is an artist. Q, we used to say Q could take a 6-0 proline, which is the stitch we use. It's about as thin as the strand of your hair. It's got a little needle on the end. That's the stitch we use to sew things up. Q could take a 6-0 proline and a piece of pericardium. Pericardium is the sac that the heart sits in. It's really the only free tissue there is inside the chest. You can steal a piece of pericardium, turn it into something else, and use it somewhere else. And you, the, the body really doesn't miss that piece of pericardium. He could take a 6-O-proline and a piece of pericardium and create a new valve out of it. We used to tease and say he could take a 6-O-proline and a piece of pericardium and fix your carburetor with it. Like he, he, was a, he was an artist. He was truly an artist. And the part about watch... Watch, do part, do more, do all, watch. Watch Q. I would stand there and watch him. And I would say, this guy's an artist. Like, what is he doing? You can't do he, And then he throws a couple stitches. I'm looking, how's he going to make? It's like watching Michelangelo create the Pieta. Right? He takes a big block of marble the size of a Volkswagen. And a year later, he's got Jesus and Mary and the whole deal. And you say, how did he do that? Well, if you went a week into it, when he's chipping away at the corner, you'd say, what is he doing? Nah, that's not going to turn into Jesus. He's all buggered up. Not going to happen. And I used to watch Q and think the same thing. What's he doing? And then he would do a little further and a little further. And 30 minutes later, he's got an aortic valve. <laughs> How'd you do that? Like, amazing. How did you do that? Watch. Watch a bunch of times. And learn. And remember. And see, took a little nip here, took a little tuck there, and that was enough to create a valve. And when I watch him do that, I was amazed. There would be parts of the operation that they would let us do. Slowly over time, bigger and bigger parts. So a typical cardiac operation goes like this. You make an incision, you open the chest, you get to the heart. You're going to need to stop the heart, so you use the heart-lung machine to pump the blood while you're stopping, while the heart is stopped. In order to use the heart-lung machine, you have to what we call cannulate the aorta and the, and the, and the venous system. So you've got to put a garden hose-sized thing in the aorta and one in the, in the uh, right atrium. You cannulate, you go on bypass, now all the blood's going through the heart-lung machine. You do whatever the operation was, change the valve, do bypass, whatever. Then you turn off the heart-lung machine, then you decannulate, take the cannulas out, then you close up. 
Those are the process. The, 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 that's the process. Those are the series of steps. And they would let us do more and more of those steps. And the idea was, I want to get on this side of the table. I want to do all the steps and never go back. That's my goal. So they would say, come over. Why don't you open and cannulate? You go on bypass, and then I'll take over and actually do the operation. Okay, fine. And then 10, ten of those. And then you'd say, all right, why don't you start with cutting out the valve, and then I'll come back and put the new valve in. And then 10 of those or 20 of those. And then, all right, why don't you take it out and put it back in again, and, then, and pretty soon now you're doing the whole operation. The idea was to get to this side of the table and, in my mind, never go back. <clears throat> When we would operate, each bite we would take with a stitch, with a needle driver, putting a needle in, they would say to us, for instance, let's say we're sewing two pipes together. And understand these pipes, coronary bypass, these pipes are about a millimeter, millimeter and a half in diameter. So picture the lead on the end of your pencil, about a millimeter. It's hollow. It's a pipe, right? We've got to sew two of them together. That requires a certain amount of manual dexterity, a certain amount of vision, a certain amount of setting it up to make it easier, and then start taking bites. And you're basically taking a stitch all the way around, not unlike looking at the stitches on a baseball, right? You're taking stitches all the way around to sew the cover on a baseball. Same, same idea. And they would, the attending, the, 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 the surgeon, and I was in residency, I was learning, he would say, that bite's too big. Took too much bite. Took too much progress. Don't, don't, don't advance on the baseball too far. If you notice on a baseball, the stitches are very uniform. Right? The, the distance back from the seam is the same, and the distance to the next bite and the next bite and the next bite is very uniform. That's what we're trying to create in the operating room. So they would say to us, too big a bite, too, too, uh, too small a bite. All right, yeah, right there. Okay, take it. Okay, your next bite, too much progress. No, no, no. You're making too much progress. It's going to leak. If the seam on the baseball is too far apart and the stitches are, you only put six bites in a baseball. I think there's 108, by the way. If you only took six bites in a baseball, the thing would come apart, right? This has to be blood tight. It's going to, you're going to put two things together that are holding blood. So they would talk to us. They would say, too much, too, too much progress, too little progress. Bigger bite. No, 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 bigger bite. Yeah, it's too flimsy. Bigger bite's going to tear through. And they would walk us through that. Finally, after all that, I get to this side of the table. Home run. I love it. This is where I was born to be. I'm on this side of the table. I'm doing the operation. In the middle of the operation, un, un, uh, unanticipated. He says, eh, why don't we switch sides? Ah, no. Man, I finally made it over here. Yeah, why don't we switch sides just for a minute? Now, I don't say that, obviously. I'm thinking that. Switch sides because there's a particularly tenuous part, and he wants to make sure the bite's perfect, whatever, and we switch sides, and he says, okay, come on back over, right? My goal is to never go back over there while I'm in training. I want to be in charge. I want to say, let's do it this way, right? When I make it to this side of the operating table, understand the operating table is about a foot and a half wide. My head is right here where the microphone is. His head, he's standing there, is about right here. His mouth is about an inch from my ear and vice versa, right? So we could talk very quietly and each hear each other and nobody else in the room could hear us, right? There's an intimacy with my mentor that I only get in that operating room. And I used to look forward to that. Hey, what do you think about this? I could ask him stuff in the case, during the case. I could ask 
And he would whisper back. No one else would hear it but me. There was an intimacy with my mentor that occurred only in that moment. His head is right here. We're both looking down. We're looking down and we're talking. Would you put it here? Yeah, now I think I'd put it a little further out. Okay, put it a little further out. And no one else is listening. They can't hear us. We're talking. There's an intimacy with my mentor. I can pick his brain. And really what I loved is I had him all to myself. I could ask him about stuff that had nothing to do with this case. I wouldn't do it during the middle of the case. I'd wait till the end. But you could ask him about stuff. You had your mentor right here for 90 minutes, two hours, something like that. That's a pretty unique moment as a heart surgeon. And of course, as I'm describing it, it reminds us of our time alone with Christ. What I'm looking for in my walk right now, today, is Christ's head right here. Us staring at a problem. Have an intimate conversation back and forth at the level of a whisper that I can hear and nobody else can. And I can open up to him in a whisper what I'm struggling with. Josh this morning talked about fear and fear how we allow fear to let us abandon our principles and our walk with Christ. We allow fear to get in the middle of that. And I think about it. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of what some guy thinks. I'm working for Haman right now. I really think that. I care what he thinks or I care what Christ thinks. And I would have allowed fear to not get me up here. I would have allowed fear to make me not take a stand at work, to say, no, I'm not doing that. That's not right. And I got to experience an intimacy with Christ with his head right here. We're both staring at a problem, and he's whispering to me, I got this. I got this, Joe. You're going to do this. Then you're going to do that, just like in the OR. When my mentor said, no, we're not, we're not going to bypass there. We're going to bypass over here. Did my mentor, when I was operating, have this patient's best intention at heart? Of course. That's his patient. You know I killed a patient. You know, he certainly don't want to let me kill the patient. Right? Does my, my today mentor, Jesus, have the best will and intention at heart? Of course he does. I can't see that sometimes, but he can see that. Do I trust my mentor? I trust Craig Smith. Craig Smith operating on Bill Clinton. He's at Columbia. He's been there for a million years. He's my mentor. He's one of them. He has the patient's best interest at heart. Do we trust our mentor, Jesus? Does he have our best intention at heart? Sometimes, obviously, he can see what's going to happen better than we can. We try to mess it up by saying, God, I think we should do this. He says, shut up, we're doing that instead. Right? That happens to me all the time. No, 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 God, God, I got it. Watch, check it out. We're going to do this. He says, pipe down. That's not what we're doing. I go to the Bible. I look at Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you. How many of us would have signed up for that? I don't know about me. Go to land. No, 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 God, I got a good gig here. 
got a whole bucket full of camels and sheep and oxen and whatever. No, no, no. Go to the land that I will show you. Okay. He does. I look at Philip in Acts. Acts 8. And I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. 825. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Best line in the Bible. So he got up and went. Okay, I need to sign up for that. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He's coming from Ethiopia. I actually pulled up Ethiopia on a map. It's pretty far. He's coming from Ethiopia. He's returning, sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Verse 29, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He invites Philip up to come to sit with him. We know the rest of the story. The eunuch accepts Christ. They see a pond of water. He comes down and he gets baptized, and poof, Philip's gone. Philip went. He did what God told him. It achieved the outcome God wanted. Oh, by the way, some say the Ethiopian eunuch returns back to Ethiopia and starts a revival of spreading the gospel in, in, in all of Africa. God had a plan. Philip didn't know the plan. God said, go. Go south. Arise. Go south to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. He said, okay. He went. Is that me? Not so much. God says, Joe, here's what I want you to do. God says, Joe, here's what I want you to do. His head's right here. If I have time alone with him, it becomes intimate. Let me tell you, in the last few months, I have had some serious intimate time with Jesus. I get up every morning. When I can't sleep, I get up about 4.30 in the morning. And the world starts weighing on me. Joe, what are you doing? Seriously? Really? You're walking away from all this? What are you doing? And I say, okay, God, I'm going to need some encouragement today. I prayed with a bunch of our pastors here over the last few months over this issue. And they, they all said to me, you're going to see a tender side of Jesus that you never saw before. And let me tell you how true that is. I wake up 4.30 and I say, God, I'm struggling. Going to walk away from my job. Are you serious? I got a good gig here. That says, no, that's what I want you to do. So, all right, I'm going to need some encouragement today. Can you do me that? An hour later, the phone rings. Somebody I haven't talked to in six months. Hey, God, put, put you on my heart. Really? Seriously? Okay, God, that was pretty cool. Thank you. Every day, I pray for encouragement. He gives me encouragement. Every day, there's a tenderness to him that I didn't get to experience before this. He sees it. He knows my heart. He knows I'm struggling. He knows your heart. He knows you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with. It almost doesn't matter what we're struggling with. It's an opportunity to get God's head right here to stare at the problem and to whisper, Hey, God. I'm really struggling with this, man. Help me out. I'm trying to do what you want me to do. I need your help. He says, okay, I got you.
One chapter later in Acts chapter 9, the story of Ananias. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. And the Lord said to him in a vision, we know the story, right? Ananias, go hang out with Saul, Saul of Tarsus, right? The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. I love when they do that. Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, go to the street called Street. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. <laughs> and Ananias, like Joe, said, whoa, whoa, Lord, whoa, slow down. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. God, are you sure you got the right guy? Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that were me, I'd say, God, you got this all fouled up, man. This is Saul of Tarsus we're talking about. This is, this is Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Adolf Hitler. Fill in whatever you want to fill in the worst of the worst, because that's what Saul was. You want me to go pray and lay hands on him? Seriously, I'm not going near that guy. He's going to kill us all, take my wife and kids. No, I know what I'm doing. I don't have it fouled up. That's what I want you to do. To do that, we need to trust them. Not so easy to do sometimes. In our flesh, and I am guilty of this as anybody, we try to help God. We try to help God. God, I, I, I can handle this part. You go deal with that other part over there. I, I, I got this figured out, right? And he says, pipe down. You don't, <laughs> you don't have it figured out. So I think back to my training. So we had eight or ten of us on a team at various stages of training. The fifth year was the most trained, four, couple of threes, two twos, and three ones. Those are years of training. And the five was in charge. So I'm the five. And the next day's OR schedule comes out. And on the next day's schedule, there's 30 cases on the schedule and, uh, you know, two gallbladders, three hernias, uh, five uh, uh, colon resections, a couple of abdominal aneurysms, whatever. A bunch of cases on the schedule. So as the five, the fifth-year resident, the chief resident, I get to say, okay, Bill, you're going to do this case. You You do those two cases. This is your level of case, the hernia for the intern, the colon resection for the third year resident. We divvy them up. And I always remember George Todd. George Todd was a vascular surgeon, excellent vascular surgeon, still is. And he used to come in, poke his head in the room. And he wanted to know who was doing the three cases he had on the schedule that day, who was assisting him. And I was assigning them. Oh, you get Mary and Bob for those cases. Except he didn't ask it that way. George Todd used to come in the room, open the door. He says, who's my opponent today? That was how he viewed who was helping him. Who is my opponent today? Because in his mind, 
He's doing everything he can to keep this patient alive, and the assistant who's trying to help him is doing everything they can to try to kill the patient, and you are my opponent, right? That's how he thought of this. Who is my opponent today? And I think sometimes that's how God looks at me. Joe, are you my opponent today? Or are you on my team? Say, yeah, God, I'm getting this fouled up, aren't I? He says, you're my opponent, or are you on my team? You're going to help me achieve what I want to achieve? Here's the thing. He asked Ananias to go pray for Saul, and the scales come off. He could have asked Bill, Tom, or Harry. He didn't need to ask Ananias. He could have had the scales fall all by himself. He didn't need any of us. But he said to Ananias, you go. I know you're scared. You go. He's a chosen vessel of mine. I want you laying hands on him. When I was in college, I was at Harvard as an undergrad. I took a biology class. And we studied botany and trees and plants and whatever. And i never forget one, one, one um, professor. And he made this point. He said, there are oak trees that live two, three hundred years. And we think that's a really big deal. Well, some research has discovered that there are seeds that live 1,700 years, 1,800 years. So what we all think of, that a tree makes a seed to create another tree, if you think that tree's lasting 200 years and the seed in the ground is lasting 1,700 years, it may change your perspective a little bit. And you may conclude a seed makes a tree only to create another seed. Like maybe our focus is a little backwards or a little off. A tree, a seed is a tree's way of making another tree, right? Tree grows, drops a seed makes another tree. Well, if the tree's around for 200 years and the seed's around for 1,700 years, maybe that perspective is a little bit off. Maybe a tree is a seed's way of making another seed. And I always look at things with what is my bias and my perspective on that story. My bias on the story of Saul and Ananias is God could have just as easily written Joe, Bill, or Tom instead of Ananias because the story's about Saul and Saul's conversion and the scales on his eyes and how he's going to write half of the New Testament after he gets converted. That's my perspective. What if the story's about Ananias? What if he's putting you and me in Ananias' position and he's saying, I want you to do something. And it may get, make it into the Bible, and it may not make it into the Bible, but I want you to do something for me. And maybe there's part of the story that never got recorded in the Bible that went on how Ananias' faith grew and he was able to do other things, whatever. And maybe that's me today. Joe, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to not say. I want to shut your mouth. Because I'd like to tell the world how evil Haman is. And he says, no. I said, I don't want you to do I don't want you to fight this battle. I want to fight this battle. This is my battle. I think <clears throat> there are numerous examples in the Bible where God blesses our obedience. I think he blesses our obedience tremendously. He certainly curses those that curse us. He says to Israel, I will curse those that curse you, and I will bless those that bless you. I think he does that individually as well. 
I think he blesses our obedience. I have said for many years to my former CEO, I think our program's doing great things because of obedience. I do. I, I know the program's not about it, Christian Christ and those sorts of things, but I think it is. And I think God blesses our obedience. And I think when he says, Ananias, I want you to go over there, God blesses that. He says, Joe, I want you to meet with this person and say this. I think he blesses that. The problem is sometimes is I can't hear God. Why? Because his head's not right there. Or better said, his head's right there and my head walked away. Right? If I'm not intimate with God, day by day, moment by moment, if his head is right here and we're looking at the issue and we can whisper and hear each other, if I put God in that spot for me, I can hear what he's saying, no problem. His head's right here. It's easy. It's not, oh, God, what do you think? No, I just told you. Now, don't get me wrong. I've not heard, you know, Noah, I want you to build me an ark. I've not heard God speak to me, but God gives me his answers, and I hear a piece about it. My wife confirms it. Honey, I think we should do this. I know it's scary, but I think we should do this. Okay, so now let's assume we've heard him. His head's right here. We're intimate back and forth, talking really quietly, and I've heard what he said. I'm scared, but I heard what he said. Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run the race with endurance. That word endurance is often translated with patience with patient endurance. I never think about running a race slowly, with patience, with endurance. I think about running a race fast. And God says, no, I want you to run the race slowly. I want to jump to the conclusion. I want to put Haman on his gallows. God says, no, I want you to run the race at my pace, not at your pace. He says to Philip, go to the road that lead south. And Philip says, we got all these converts here, man. We got action. We're doing your ministry. He says, pipe down. Go. To, I'm telling you what I want you to do. Go do it. I have a lot of students watch me operate in the operating room, and some of them have a desire to be nurses or to be doctors. And now and again, we'll have one that has a desire to be a heart surgeon. And I had one a few years back. And they're in the room, and they're they're not touching anything. They're just observing, and they're watching heart surgery. And at the end, one said, what do I got to do to be you? And I said, well, what year in college are you? I said, oh, I'm a junior in college. I said, great, finish college, go to four years of medical school, do five years of general surgery training, do three years of cardiac surgery training, add that up, it's 12 or 14 years, and then come back and call me. Right? At that point, you'll be a heart surgeon. It's a long road, right? As Craig Smith used to say, it's an awful long walk from that side of the table to this side of the table. It's a lot longer than three feet down, a foot and a half over, and three feet back. So I say that to this young student, this college student, and I say, go do all that. He says, no, that don't work for me. I want your job now. (laughs) I said, okay, you're not going to get my job now. 
That doesn't work like that. Nobody's going to let you operate at 22 years old because you took a biology class at college. Right? That doesn't work like that. He didn't have the patience to do it. And that's me sometimes. God, I don't want to wait so long. You haven't hung Haman on his gallows yet. What's taking you so long? He says, run the race with endurance, with patience. He says, I got this. You don't have this. I got this. All right, I want to take you to a story in the Bible. David against the Philistines. David's already taken care of Goliath. I'm in 2 Samuel 5.17. David's already taken care of Goliath. And they've anointed David as king. 2 Samuel 5.17. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, he asked the Lord, his head is right here in the OR with Jesus, with God. David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? The Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Belperazim. David defeated them there. Drop down to 22. Philistines went up once again. We're going to do this again. We're going to have battle again. Philistines went up once again, deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them. Come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so. As the Lord commanded him, he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. The second time, verse 23, he inquired of the Lord. He said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them. Come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. What does that mean? Well, the leaves shake in the mulberry trees when a really large army is really close. So that idea of me waiting patiently on God to fight the battle, in that case, he lets the battle army come to close enough that when they march, the leaves on the top of the trees are shaking. Then, when you hear that, advance quickly. Why? Because the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Okay, God, you're making this battle get awfully close before you're going to shoot down my enemy. Okay, we can learn from that. I wanted him to shoot down my enemy a long time ago. I'll take you to one more story. And this is in Judges 6. It has to do with Gideon against the Midianites. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Oprah, belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. He's talking to Gideon. The angel says, The Lord is with you, you mighty men of valor. Gideon said, My Lord, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? And where are the miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us? The Lord turned to him and said, 
Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, How, Lord, can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm just little old me. How can I do it? Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and shall defeat the Midianites. Jump down, he destroys the altar of Baal. And here we go, the battle. All the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So he blows the trumpet, and the Abyssalites gathered behind him. He's now amassing his army. And and uh, And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh who gathered behind him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they all came up to meet him. Jump down to chapter 7. Gideon and all the people who were with him arose early. We've got two armies encamped on either side. And camped by the well, the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said, great line, the Lord said, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim the glory for itself, saying, My own hand has saved me. I'll jump ahead. There were 35, sorry, 32,000 on his team. He says, Send 22,000 home. Ask them if they're fearful, and they go back to their homes. 22,000 gets down to 10,000. He says, Still too many. Can't do it. I'm going to drop it down. We're all going to go by the water. Whoever laps it this way, that they're in. Whoever laps it the other way, they're out. Sends home all but 300. So we started with 32,000, and God said, no, it's too many. You guys are going to claim the victory. You're 32,000 valiant warriors. Not good enough. Gets them down to 300. And 300 defeated 135,000. God defeated. One defeated 135,000. 300 of Gideon's men defeat 135,000 Midianites. I think God puts trials in our life to mature us into what he wants us to become. And I've spent many years of my life trying to run away from the trials. God, get me out of this. God says, no, you're exactly where I want you. Just like Ananias was, just like Gideon was, just like all of them are. And I'm the one that's going to give you victory. Not you. You're just some schmo. It's me. It's all about me. It's always been all about me. There's a tenderness to God that I have seen in the last few months that I never saw, or at least not to this depth. But the question for us is, are we getting alone with him? Are we intimate with him? Do we allow my head and his head to be this close together so that we can whisper and hear each other? He hears us. He responds. Sometimes we're too busy with noise that we can't hear his response. We try to fix it in our own strength. I know I try to do that. God wants the glory. 300 Gideon's men versus 135,000 Midianites. The question is, where are you guys today? God brought you here for a reason. Your buddy that dragged you here was for a reason. God brought me here for a reason. I needed to hear this as much as you guys needed to hear this. God's using every one of us. The world is a mess out there. The world is running away from God. And God is using us to show the world who he is and what he's done.
Will we, will we be open to it? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing all these men here. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, uh, tug at our hearts, Lord. Let us see who you are. Let us hear you intimately when you whisper, Lord. Lord, we love you. We want to honor you. We want to do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.